The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. I've heard that many times since I became a Christian in 1991. It's never meant so much to me as it does this morning. Um, last week, Pastor Graham, our new interim senior pastor, preached a wonderful message, but he also made some promises, that, and I just loved how he promised that he would fear God more than he feared man. And in my first sermon, I did preach the same sermon at 9 o'clock service, but in my first sermon, I thought I'd go one step further. And I must confess that I'm nervous about both God and man today. Our community group, and we've got a great community group, has been a great source of encouragement for me. And, uh, you know, they put it, uh, when they heard that I was preaching, they put it on the little WhatsApp thing that we've got. And so uh, they, they did that on Friday. Many of us met, uh, and they prayed over me. It was really encouraging. Um, one of our community group members was in the prayer room, all of the 9 o'clock service, praying for me. Um, and it's just such a great source of encouragement, and I, I'm really, really grateful for that. And because many of us are involved with schools, uh, given that it's term break, uh, term break started yesterday, we're all going to gather for fellowship meal this evening, and I suspect that the main course is going to be roast preacher. But I'm looking forward to that, um, and, and, and I'm sure it's going to be a great evening. Um, just a couple of things. I wanted to especially welcome those that are watching online. Uh, I usually get a, a text message about now from Rob and Eugenia Sparks from Yorktown, so if you're watching, a shout out to you. But I also wanted to welcome everybody from Flow Groups that's here today. Um, I'm so glad you're here. This message is as much for you as it is for everybody else, and I really, I'm really, really glad that you're here. Um, I also wanted to, to just kind of celebrate the news that Pastor Jeff has been back at church this week, and it's great to have him back. But I also wanted to share something um, that is, is something that no, no pastor or no preacher should ever have to get up uh, from this pulpit and have to share. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a little difficult for me, and, I, and I, I'm really struggling with the timing of it all. But I, I hate to tell all of you, I'm reliably informed that last night the demons won the game. Uh, for those of you that don't know the context, it was the AFL Grand Final and the Melbourne Demons we're playing against the Western Bulldogs, and, and it just feels a little bit like a conspiracy when I'm going to be talking and preaching about a battle that the wrong team seemed to win, but, uh, but, but roll with me. Uh, despite my nerves and despite my, uh, my, my nervousness, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get through the next 30, 30 35 minutes, and, and I'm kind of pretty certain that you will as well. But my heart is really seized with what happens after you walk out through those doors. It's my sincere desire that the Word of God will pierce you, the Holy Spirit will convict you, and the love of God will envelop you. And as you'll discover in the passage, it all begins with prayer. So let's pray, shall we? Almighty God, to whom our hearts are open, our desires are known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the gracious power of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Each one in this room is in a battle. Now, the last weeks and months, I've met with different people who are fighting as hard as they can, each in their own way. I think of one person that's in a battle for mental health. They're struggling to get out of bed, it's a constant battle for them to even get through the whole day without some form of pain. A colleague at work is battling for their marriage. 
and to get through to their children. Once there was peace at home, but now their home has become a war zone. And it's just a constant struggle to get along with each other. Last week, I, I met a person in a financial battle that just doesn't know how to cover the cost of an unplanned vehicle breakdown. They need the car to get to work, but they also need to pay rent. And there isn't enough in the bank to do both. Another person I know is struggling to find a replacement job because their travel agency employer let them go nine months ago, and the JobKeeper has stopped. Um, and it was with a note of desperation that they sat with me and they said, you know, Arbra, we're hearing about these new nuclear subs in South Australia. Is that, is that something you think that might be uh, something I could apply for? And, and they were just crushed when as gently as I could, I said, I understand that the first submarine will only roll off the line 20 years from now may not help to pay bills this term. Then there are those that are in a faithfulness battle. They found it difficult at this point of their life for their walk with the Lord. Stop looking at that website. To stop stopping by that pub to have a flutter at the pokies. While each one of those people that I'm referring to characterize their battle differently, none of them want their news names shared or the struggles to be made public, most of them seem to think that they're going to lose. And they're terrified by what that means for them and their loved ones. They're in deep, deep valleys, struggling in the shadows. Whatever your battle is, it's my sincere hope that today's scripture will elevate you, will encourage you, and will equip you. So let's just have a look at the scripture. I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 to 16. And if you can follow along your Bibles, that'd be great. We are going to keep referring to it, so keep your thumb there or, or your finger there, uh, starting from verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and they put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands on one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the years of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. When we look at verse 8, we're going to see that the first word in the passage that we're studying is the word then. Most people skip over it, but that word then speaks to the fact that it hadn't always been this way for Israel. To understand, let's just quickly recap the journey that we've been making through Exodus so far. It started with a pharaoh who forgot the role that Joseph had played in the administration of Egypt, and he hated the Hebrews 
So he tried to reduce the numbers with a little bit of genocide. Midwives who resisted his decrees and still delivered vigorous Hebrew babies. And then baby Moses being hidden in, 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 in the Nile and then being discovered by Pharaoh's daughter who then appoints Moses' mother as his nursemaid and Moses is brought up as a young prince. Then he witnesses the brutality of the Egyptian overlords, loses his temper, murders the Egyptians and runs away to protect his life. Then the burning bush, the sandals being removed because it's holy ground and Moses' feeble protestations God transforms the staff that's in Moses' hand as a symbol of God's majesty, power, and justice. And because of Moses' speech impediment, he and his brother Aaron go to see the Pharaoh to ask him to let my people go. Then the horrible plagues that demonstrate God's authority over nature, his creation, and all the peoples of the earth, culminating in that first bloody Passover, and the angel of death stalked through the streets of the Egyptian capital, smiting the firstborn of every household that was not covered by the blood of the lamb. Then Pharaoh loads up his people with treasure, says, go, you can leave. What an amazing end to that fairy tale, except it wasn't. Second thoughts, the full Egyptian army sent after them, and the Israelites trapped between the armies of Pharaoh and the deep blue sea. Out comes Moses' rod, and the waters part, and the Israelites cross, and when the Egyptians try and follow, the waters come back, and the entire army is destroyed. Then they came to the wilderness called Mara. It was an oasis of water, and they were dying of thirst. But when they tasted the water, they discovered the waters were bitter and undrinkable. But God puts his finger in the water and turned it into the sweetest water on earth. Then they came to a place called Elam. Here they were starving to death because they had no food. Whatever food they brought with them had finished and they were bitter. But God came through and began to rain down manna from heaven and quails until their stomachs were full. And then last week we arrived at Rephidim and we saw that again they were thirsty but there was no water, bitter or sweet, and they were grumbling, but we realized that it was the Lord that brought them there. In verses 5 and 6, God tells Moses to strike the rock in Horeb with his rod, and the water comes forth. Whew! My question for you is, how would you characterize the journey so far? Imagine if you asked the Israelites... They would describe it as obstacle after obstacle, disaster after disaster. Heat, the Sinai and the Negev, they were deserts, not, not cool places, except at night when it would be freezing. <coughs> dust, can you imagine how much dust 2.4 million people and their livestock can raise in a, in a dry desert? Sharp stones, except around Horeb where we discover that the, the stones are miraculously smooth, almost as if a large body of water came through and smoothened them. Hard beds, not very much restful sleep that night. But what if, what if I was to offer you a, a different perspective? 
What if I was to tell you that as hard as the journey was, it was better than slavery in Egypt? Last week, we encountered at Horeb, we encountered God's provision, God's protection, and God's presence. And it's really important that I remind you that God had taken care of every step that Israel had taken. Wherever God led them, he made sure they were taken care of. Where God guides, he always provides. It's all a matter of perspective. Um, a little bit like this picture here that will come up on the screen. What do you see? This is called My Wife and My Mother-in-Law, and it's a famous optical illusion that depicts both an old woman looking off to the left and a young woman facing away looking over her right shoulder. The old woman's nose is the young woman's chin. Do you see it? They are both trapped in this famous optical illusion that first appeared on an 1888 German postcard and was later adapted by an English cartoonist named William Eli Hill, who published it in a humor magazine in 1915. What is your perspective in your battle this morning? You see, biblical faith, that's true faith in the existence, the presence, the promises, and the provisions of God never requires you to deny reality in any way. Biblical faith looks reality in the face and does not flinch but it also does not allow those realities to dominate the meditations of your heart. It examines reality, but makes the Lord the meditation. You see, the more you meditate on your problems, the bigger and more insurmountable they appear. But meditating on God in the midst of your trouble reminds you once again that God is infinitely greater than any problem that you are experiencing. So, are you looking to the left or are you looking to the right? Is your perspective like the Israelites, one of bitterness, grumbling, and resentment? Or is it one of trust born from the promises of God who is greater than all of your problems? This is a good time to shout out to my good friend Harold Karn who usually attends the 9 o'clock service and who preached a great message at Found at Five a couple of weeks ago. It was 26 minutes long. It's on the Found at Five podcast, and I really encourage you to, to, to have a listen. Um, I enjoyed it because 26 minutes is exactly how long it takes for me to get from home to work, and so I had a perfect, perfect little uh, scenario there. Um, and my good friend Harold loves Pastor Timon's preaching because it's, it's one where he can take notes. And so for all of you out there that are like Harold and like to have notes, here are the three points of my sermon. Number one, battles are unavoidable. There was an enormous blessing at Horeb just last week, and without a breath, the Amalekites are in the camp. Number two, battles in the valley are won on the mountaintop. And number three, the battle... Your battle belongs to the Lord. So, 
Let's look at the, uh, let's look at the, 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 the passage again. Despite the wonders of the waters of Horeb, the children of Israel are under attack. They need to go into a battle that they could not avoid. Look at verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. General Douglas MacArthur, who served at different times, he was the superintendent of the West Point Military Academy, but ended up as supreme commander of all of the Allied forces in the Asia Pacific, um, and lived in Adelaide for a while. It was from Adelaide he was headed up to Darwin when he gave his most famous speech at the train station in Peterborough, where he promised he'd be back at Batam. But, but a gentleman that knew something about winning battles and losing battles once wrote an article entitled Requisites for Military Success. Up on the slides, you'll see there are four ingredients to win any battle. First one is morale. Second one is strength. The third one is supply. But the fourth one is knowledge of the enemy. Of the last ingredient, General MacArthur said, the greater the knowledge of the enemy, the greater the potential for victory. So who were the Amalekites that the Israelites encountered in Exodus 17? And why is it that every time we read about Amalek, he is found inside the camp of Israel? Amalek was the grandson of Esau. Esau is known for being the man who sold his birthright for a mess of pottage, and he hated his brother Jacob, who fooled their, their own father to, to cheat and get the blessing, but who also encountered God, wrestled with God, and had his name changed to Israel. So is it really surprising that Esau's descendants were the first nation to oppose Israel after they left Egypt? I think not. The Amalekites are first mentioned in, uh, during the time of Abraham in Genesis 14. And throughout the whole of the Old Testament, there's a long-lasting feud between the Amalekites and the Israelites. In 1 Samuel, they keep popping up. In 1 Samuel 15, it says that Saul completely destroyed the Amalekites. In 1 Samuel 27, it declares that David completely destroyed the Amalekites. In 1 Samuel 30, verses 1 and 2, records that David destroyed a raiding party of Amalekites with only 400 men escaping. And finally, in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, it declares that the Simeonites killed all of the Amalekites. Now, I know what you're thinking. How many times can the Amalekites be completely destroyed? But as I dug a little bit deeper, the apparent contradiction really is explained by each of these defeats relating to Amalekites in a specific area rather than their complete elimination. But the battles didn't always go one way. You'll see on the slide that in Numbers chapter 14, the Amalekites defeat the Israelites once, at least. And this defeat is because the Israelites did not wait upon the Lord, but took the situation into their own hands. So, you look at all these verses, and, and, and what do you conclude, right? Number one, the Amalekites are the first enemy Israel faced. They were inside the enemy camp. They're hard to get rid of. And Israel didn't always win against them. Add all of those factors together. This is the conclusion I reach. Even though the Amalekites were a, a real group of people, I also believe that they're a symbol of our flesh and human nature, that sinful nature that we're born with, which causes us to do bad when we want to do good. 
When I look at my own life, I can tell you that my flesh gets me into far more trouble than the devil ever does. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul puts it this way. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So, know your enemy. And remember that God is allowed to be where you are, just like Israel was at Horeb. But God hasn't left you there by yourself. He's there with you. So as we're looking at this passage, the first thing we need to remember is that the battles are unavoidable. Which brings me to my second point. If you look at your Bibles in verses 9 and 10, what do you, why do you think Moses went to the top of the hill? Well, from the top of the hill, you could get a better picture. You could get a really good view. From the top of the hill, Moses could see the whole battle. He could see the strength of his people, and he could see the weaknesses of his people. That's what you get to see from the top of the hill. But let me tell you what I see. When there was a battle, Moses headed for higher ground, and so should we. Moses, Moses, he represents the prayer warrior. Moses is praying while Joshua is fighting, and any time a Christian prays, he or she is always moving to higher ground. You see, you and I cannot win in the valley unless we win on the mountaintop. Weariness in prayer means weakness in battle. Where the battle is really won or lost is in prayer. Moses went to the mountaintop with a heavy burden. He knew that Joshua was going to have his hands full while he was in battle. This is a bunch of refugees. They'd never done anything other than fight with each other. They weren't an army. And then suddenly Joshua was presented as the general. Moses' burden drove him to pray. There was a great need for prayer. Hmm. Now, look carefully at verse 11. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hands that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hands down, Amalek prevailed. The word prevailed in the Hebrew language literally means to be given strength, to increase strength. Prayer not only blesses you, but also strengthens you and the people you're praying for. That's why it's so important to be praying for others. Notice the wording in verse 11. Whenever Moses held up his hands, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hands, Amalek prevailed. The verse doesn't say Joshua didn't prevail. We're told when he let down his hands, Amalek prevailed. What happens when Christians don't pray? When we don't pray, we not only weaken ourselves, we strengthen the enemy. When we don't pray, we take strength from ourselves, strength that belongs to us, and we give strength to the enemy. Listen carefully. Prayer is not just for defense. Prayer is meant for offense. We read in Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul tells us about the armor of God, you'll find that every single piece of the armor is for defense, except for two. One, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and the number two is prayer. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, it says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance 
and supplications for all the saints. The prayer that Moses prayed is important because as long as he prayed, victory was won. But Moses didn't go alone. Look at your Bibles. According to verse 10, Aaron and Hur went with Moses. Joshua didn't go into battle by himself, and Moses didn't have to go and pray by himself. When these men went to the mountaintop to pray, they were interceding for Joshua. There's something really interesting about these men that I want you to notice. We're told that while Moses was praying, his hands became weary and heavy, and his hands couldn't stay up. When that happened, there were two men who were there to intercede for Joshua and help their leader, Moses, as he prayed. Joshua, he represents that great general. The men that were in the battle, they're great soldiers fighting the Amalekites. Moses, he represents a great leader. Aaron represents the great high priest. Her, her, her. Hmm. Her was just an ordinary man. Just an ordinary man who could pray. The Bible has a lot to say about Joshua. The Bible has a lot to say about Moses. The Bible has a lot to say about Aaron. But we know very little about her. In fact, we only hear about her one more time in the entire Bible. And I'd encourage all you trivia junkies out there to go and find it. Somewhere in Numbers. That's the only other time we hear about her. Now, I'm sure there's at least one person here. They know who this her is. Uh, maybe you're thinking about the son of her, Judah Ben-Hur. And uh, <laughs> the movie Ben-Hur, that's not him. Okay? But the movie was released in 1959 and had the largest budget of any Hollywood film as well as the largest sets ever built and produced at the time. But it had nothing to do with her in Exodus chapter 17. Ben-Hur was a remake of a 1925 silent film with a similar title which itself was adapted from a book written by Lou Wallace in 1880 called Ben-Hur, A Tale of Christ. Now, while Hur was no relation to Charlton Heston, he was just as important on that mountain praying for Joshua as Moses or Aaron. Hur may represent the layperson in the church. He represents the one that not, is not found leading the men's ministry, but just attending. He's not up on stage of the worship team, but he just loves great worship music. You might even find him in the parking lot with a high-vis vest showing you where to park. We don't see her up on stage very often, but we do see him in the engine room of the church, our prayer room, which is right next door. I believe her represents those unsung heroes in the church who get to kiss the sky because they take time to get on their knees to pray. Just imagine that hilltop back in Exodus 17. Moses, the leader that God has called to lead Israel. I believe Pastor Timon and Pastor Graham are the ones that God has called to lead the church. Aaron is found beside his leader, Moses. I'd love to believe that the elders are like Aaron, standing on one side of our pastors, supporting them. And I see her, a layperson, an ordinary Israelite who could pray on the other side. Could you be a her? We've seen today that the battle is still being fought. The war is still raging. The hands of praying men and women are getting heavy. Support is getting weak. We need more hers. We need more prayer warriors. The battle was won in the valley 
because the battle was won on the mountaintop. One won the battle in the prayer closet, the other won the battle in the field of battle. Both were accomplished because it was done through the power of our almighty God. You see, our pastors, they don't need more burdens. They need help carrying the burdens that they already have. Our church needs more people to stand next to our pastors to help them hold their hands up in prayer that the enemy will be defeated. Most Monday mornings during school term time, I try to get to the prayer room next door from 6.30 to 7 in the morning. Lou George, who's an incredible prayer warrior, leads us in praying for different countries and for many of you, name by name, interceding and asking for God's provision, God's protection, and God's presence in your lives. We'd love to see more people join us. Or you could be a herb by turning up on Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock in the prayer room, or on Thursday nights from 7 to 8 p.m., or maybe even the once-a-month corporate prayer that we have on Sunday afternoons from 3.30 to 4.30. But by turning up at any one of these opportunities for prayer, you would be declaring your dependence on God and interceding on our behalf. You would be heading for higher ground. You would be interceding on behalf of our church and lifting up the battle, the hands as the battle raises. So we know that battles are to be expected. We know that battles in the valley are won on the mountaintops. But let me also tell you my third point, which is the battle belongs to the Lord. Look at your Bibles in verses 14 and 15. This is the first time ever in Scripture that we are told that God ever told anyone to write something down. The Ten Commandments, they haven't happened yet. This is the first time that Israel is commanded to write down something by the Lord. God wanted this account written down because he wanted to make it clear that the victory came from him. That day in Exodus 17, Israel enjoyed the blessings of victory, but only God got the praise for victory. Let's be absolutely clear. Joshua fought, Moses prayed, but it was God that gave the victory. Amen. And this banner, Nisi, that was written down gave Israelites a new name for God, one that God wanted them to remember in the many future battles they would face, Jehovah Nisi. The Hebrew word for Nisi translated banner or means war flag. It's an emblem of the victory that flies after a battle is fought and a battle is won, and it, the battle belongs to the Lord. Now, after all this hand-waving and preaching and sermonizing that I'm doing up here from the stage, I'm going to ask you what seems like a really silly question. What was Moses doing again up on top of the hill? Now, many of you will be thinking praying, and that's what I told you, but yes, that would be an accurate answer. But the word that I'm looking for is Moses was interceding. On that hill with Aaron and her, Moses was interceding with God to save his people. Does that remind you of anyone? Anyone at all? How about Hebrews chapter 3? In verses 1 to 6 it says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, 
as much more glory as a builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but a builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in the hope. The countless parallels between Moses and Jesus, they're no accident. They're no coincidence. Moses was the savior of the Israelites and was intended to foreshadow the only true savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Moses led the Israelites out of slavery into the promised land. Jesus frees us from the bondage of sin, equips us for the victorious Christian life and makes a way for us to heaven. Just as Moses interceded with God on top of that hill while the nation of Israel fought in the battle in the valley, our Lord Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God in heavens, our tireless advocate so that we may be forgiven while we battle down here on earth. <clears throat> Just like the Israelites had Jehovah Nissi, did you know that you and I also have a banner that we can brandish in our battles? Because of what our Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross, our banner may just read, it is finished. As he uttered those words on the cross, our Lord Jesus Christ became the final and ultimate sacrifice for our sin. The words in this verse, finished, means paid in full. Often it was used as an accounting term, which indicates a debt was paid, the full debt was paid, and that's the essence of what our Lord Jesus Christ came to do came to finish God's work of salvation in us. He came to pay it in full, the entire penalty or debt for our sins. So, so far from the passage, we've learned three things. Battles are unavoidable. In verse 16, God reminded them that this is not going to be the last battle with the Amalekites. Saul had to fight the Amalekites. David had to fight the Amalekites. You and I have to fight Amalek who represents our own flesh. We'll never be finished battling the flesh until we get to heaven. Number two, battles are won on the mountaintop. Exodus 17 points us to our incredible need for prayer and prayer warriors. We need people who will pray. We need people who will band together, get alone with God and pray. We need prayer warriors that will touch heaven for us, for this church, for other Christians, for our families. And thirdly, the battle belongs to the Lord. Just as Joshua prevailed over Amalek, you and I are promised victory over the flesh. Amalek was no match for Jehovah Nissi, and the flesh is no match for our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Which then brings me to the question that I just love. I love Francis Schaeffer, and he said it, and I just love asking people this. So, how then shall we live? I believe we should live victoriously, no matter what the battle is that we're fighting. The victorious Christian life is a life that's lived by faith, in a moment-by-moment -moment surrender to God. The victorious Christian life is rooted and grounded in faith. The whole of Hebrews 11 tells the stories of men and women who by faith were victorious in some way. Our God is always victorious, no matter the foe. Even the cross of Christ was not a defeat. For the Lord but a victory. 
victorious Christian life is a life lived in triumph over everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's the conquering of fear, knowing God's peace. It's perseverance through trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, showing us to be more than conquerors through him who loved us, as we read about Romans chapter 8. The victorious Christian life naturally leads the defeat of death itself and the glorious reward in heaven. The victorious Christian life is lived with eyes set on the things of heaven and not of this world. Our Lord Jesus is our model in this. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart, as it says in Hebrews chapter 12. The eternal life of a believer is set securely in Christ. We too are at God's right hand by faith. The victorious Christian is one who lives that reality. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up on stage as I just want to leave you with one more thought today. Remember at the beginning I said, know your enemy, and I identified Amalek as a descendant of Esau? Right? Esau was Jacob's older brother. Jacob wrestled with God in Genesis 32, and in verse 28 was given a new name, Israel. Now we say that like that, Israel, but when you break it down, it can be translated as Israel, and El is God. And one of the translations that I love, when you look at Israel, it says, God fights or God prevails. You see, Jacob was promised, and the nation of Israel was promised, that the battle belongs to the Lord. It did back then, and it does today. I'm going to ask you to get up on your feet and join me in prayer. Just as we pray for those that are battling, as we pray for a need for more prayer warriors, as we pray for our church, and as we pray for each other, come join with me, please. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me, my heart within me, is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder on the works of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those that go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, 
you will cut off my enemies, you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. And God's people said, Amen.